Can you open with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3? 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're going to continue our working through this book. We've, we've seen uh, an amazing ministry at the hand of Paul. We've seen him with tre- uh, tremendous suffering and afflictions and persecution. And we covered some of that last week. We've seen him go through amazing sacrifices with tremendous fruit in the gospel. That is, people come to faith, cities get turned upside down, and the gospel flourish in local churches, being planted, raised up, leaders set over them. And in the last few weeks, of course, in Thessalonica, that is what happened. Great preaching, conviction in the spirit, pure gospel, people saved, church planted, suffering came and drove Paul out of town. He's then landed in a couple of other cities and the same thing happened and he's, he's now writing from Corinth in about the year 50 AD. He's down there and he's finally heard back from Timothy about Thessalonica. He had left him in a rush uh, at a of his own life, and he had not yet been able to hear how they were going and what God was doing among them. And in Corinth, he hears of them from Timothy and writes this whole letter to them in encouragement to secure them, to establish them in the faith. He's also, in the last few weeks, been, been recapping his own ministry among them, saying, remember back when I was with you, only about six months tops, Ago, right? He's writing to this young, suffering church. Don't you remember how I was pure in my conduct, pure in my preaching, pure in my motivations? He has a, an exemplary ministry. And he's doing this for two reasons. He's showing them, he's, a, he's confirming to them his own holiness, reminding them, I'm not some fraud, I'm not some punk, I'm not some false teacher. You're someone, I am someone who you can trust. Remember that. But also he's giving to them an example and an exhortation. Remember how I lived among you purely with motivation, with gospel preaching for the glory of Jesus, with great reward and suffering? He's exhorting them to follow in that example. Well, we're going to read from verse 6 in chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6. And here he's wrapping up for them the, 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 the story of him sending Timothy and then hearing back from Timothy about them. He's going to write about how he is overjoyed. He's going to put on display tonight his love for them. And he's going to show us what Christian love, especially pastoral love, looks like. And the degree to which the gospel births affections for one another. Right, You and me, we have been brought into this gospel. It will affect us and our affections towards each other. Let's read in chapter 3, verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, In all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. 
For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. May God bless to us the reading, preaching, obeying of his precious holy scripture. But what we're going to see is, first of all, the encouraging report that Paul gets back. And then we're going to see the exciting uh, result that comes from it. The Firstly, the encouraging report, and then the exciting, resu- exciting result. What Paul hears back, which is a great blessing to his soul, as we see in verse uh, 6, that he heard back this good news about the Thessalonians. Good news. Now, that's the word, that's the same word that will usually come out of Greek and mean the gospel, the preaching of Christ to sinners. The best news, the greatest news, the good news. But Paul is now using this word emphatically to mean the news that he's heard from Timothy about them. This should tell us he means it. This is heavy, great, weighty, beautiful news that he is hearing. And part of that news is, verse 6, at the end there, the report that the Thessalonians always remember us kindly, that is, Paul and Silas and Timothy, remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. See, Paul had said back in chapter 2, verse 17, how he desperately endeavored more eagerly with great desire to see them face to face again and again. And now he's saying that, that it, is a, it is a blessing to hear that you feel the same way about me. I'm glad there's reciprocity here. I would hate to hear. It would break my heart all the more to hear that you had abandoned me in your hearts, that you had rejected me. But I'm glad to hear that you are wanting to see us as much as I'm wanting to see you. Further though, he he says just before that in verse 6, the good news of your faith and love. Faith and love are the summary attributes of a Christian. We saw back in chapter 1, verse 3, how Paul spoke to them about the work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope. We'll read elsewhere in the New Testament that the the greatest of the Christian characteristics are faith, hope, and love. Well, this is the triad, if you will, of Christian character. And Paul is now focusing mainly on faith and love. The significance here is that love is the fulfillment of the law. And we'll look into that in a bit. But faith is the fulfillment of or the response to the gospel. So that both gospel and law come to us and find, if they are responded to rightly, they, they, they find faith and love. Calvin says that, of speaking of faith and love, he says, herein are the entire sum of true godliness. So we're going to look a little bit more at this. See, Faith is the only true and appropriate right response to the preached gospel. 
Now, what I mean by that is this. When God comes to sinners and tells them of the, either through a preacher, a friend, a gospel tract, sermon on the web, when God comes to a sinner and tells them of the good news of salvation in Jesus, and by all of that I mean when God speaks to sinners, you and I, sinner is anybody that has fallen short of God's standard of perfection, anyone that has sinned against his law, broken a commandment, you and me, in other words, whoever you are out there, not a Christian or a Christian, we are all sinners. Every one of us condemned under God's law. Every one of us measured by pure justice against God's standard, damned, condemned, sentenced to punishment for those sins against an infinite holy God. Meaning that what we have to look forward to in our future is nothing but hell. Nothing but punishment, curse, and damnation. But, but to those people, sinners through and through, in nature, in decisions, in behavior, to us, God preaches the good news that he has in Jesus of Nazareth those 2,000 years ago, brought himself into human nature through his Son. That Jesus lived the perfect life we never could have lived as both example and to provide for us uh, a, 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 an obeyed law, a perfect righteousness. He did that and then he went to the cross where he died, not for his own sin, not for his own failures and condemnation by, from God, but that God had in that moment reckoned sinners in Christ. He reckoned sin as belonging to and being committed by Christ, though Christ was perfect in his own obedience. And, and that he, he condemned our sin in Jesus so that we can be forgiven freely and shown grace. And, and he rose Jesus from the dead after his death penalty was paid, rose him from the dead so that all those who become followers of Christ receive eternal life with him in eternity, in heaven, both now and after we die into eternity with him. All of that good news, that gospel, as we Christians say, that all is offered to sinners, and the question must be asked, what does it cost you? What is demanded by God of you and of I and of any other sinner who wants to take home this amazing benefit called the gospel? You know, the, the greater something is, the more valuable something is, the greater cost it is for you if you want to procure it. But the, the scandal, the, the upside-down nature of this, the gospel of God, which makes human wisdom look foolish and human attempts look abysmal, is that what God demands of us to receive the riches of Jesus in forgiveness and eternal life is nothing more than faith. And faith is not a working of yourself. Faith is not an act of obedience to a command. Faith is the seeing and believing of the glory of Jesus in the gospel. All that God demands is not a doing on your part, but a receiving of truth. Faith. 
This is, this is amazing. This is balked at by, by angels. They can't believe it as God explains this to them. We can't believe it and so often reject it and daily forget it, don't we Christians, at the glory of this gospel. Sinners made right with God on the basis of Christ's doing and when you have nothing more than faith. Well, no wonder Paul is glad to hear that there is faith in the Thessalonian church. But I want to ask, what is faith? Faith is the believing of God. Faith is, the most simple way I can define it, is taking God at his word. Taking God at his word is faith. And faith, it's activity. What does faith do? It, it believes God. It, it causes repentance from sin. It trusts Jesus in the gospel. And it takes God at his word in the rest of your life. Faith is the response to the gospel because it believes God about all those things. It believes that God is trustworthy. It believes that Christ can save. It believes that sin condemns. It believes that God will lead. That's what faith is. Faith is that thing which grows by knowledge with God then. So, so if we're going to say that, that faith is what receives the gospel and it is what continues to take God at his word the rest of your life, faith is taking God at his word. Therefore, faith cannot increase by grit or by hoping or wishing or just trying to make faith grow by, by bl taking blind steps of faith and crossing your fingers. That's not faith. Friend, if you want your faith to grow, as we all should, in fact, if you do not have faith and you want faith, what you must do is gain a knowledge of God. I'm not saying that once you become smart enough, theological enough, then you'll have faith. I mean that faith believes God's word. Therefore, as you believe and know more and more about God, about the gospel, about all those things that the word of God speaks to, as you know more, then you can have faith in it. It's no use, no use trying to Stir up, fuel faith by, by useless means of, of, of blind jumps of faith or, or squeezing your hands enough in prayer or taking ridiculous steps. But friends, it is simple. To feed your faith, go to the word of God, sit under the preaching of his word. Faith comes by the renewing of the mind and that through the word of God. So, so faith is, of course, to see a church flourishing in faith, taking steps of faith to God, means they have a good working knowledge of the gospel and all that the word of God says. That would give me encouragement. That does give me and Vic encouragement as we look out to this church and see that very thing. Of course Paul is encouraged. But he says even more that they have faith and love. Faith towards God and love. We said before that love fulfills the law. Love is, an is the only right way to obey God in everything that he has said. 
I want to start in Galatians 5. We're going to jump around a bit here. Galatians 5 verse 6 tells us that in Christ, there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. They count for nothing. In other words, it is not your religious background, how Jewish you are, or any outward external show of religion that brings you higher in levels, closer to the throne in Christianity. Rather, it is, he says, but only faith working through love. The right external display of Christianity is not, not circumcision, thank the Lord. It's not a chance, it's not the shirts you wear, it's not your, your, your service attendance strictly. No, no, no. It's faith working through love. The love that you show is the mark of Christianity. John 13, Jesus says to his followers, his disciples in verse 34 and 35, that it is the new commandment is to love and that others will know that we are Christ's disciples by how we love one another. Faith is so key. But I want to again return to this idea that love is the fulfilling of the law. To love God and man is the summation of the law. So, so I want to point to Matthew 22, verse 36. Matthew 22, verse 36. And here Jesus is being questioned by a lawyer about the law. And the lawyer in verse 36 says, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets all say this one thing, right? All of the laws of God, the Ten Commandments and then the 603 other laws of the Jews, and then the prophets and everything they came and preached and said, the summation of all of that was, was just to, the, 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 the key to it all was to love God, that's what the law was commanding, and to love others, that's what the law was commanding, that's what the prophets were preaching. Had you done that, O Israel, then you would have been in right standing. To obey the law looks like love. And to love, let this be known, will always look like an obedience to the law. God does not just give us a word and say love and define that however you want and then walk in it. No, love is defined by what the law commands. So, so in Christianity, this has to be known because it's just so uncommon today, so, so common to throw this out. We do not in the gospel believe that the New Testament is against the Old Testament, that the grace of God is against the commands of God, and they're separated into the first and second half of your Bible. We don't believe that love is opposed to law. Not at all. Rather, love fulfills the law, and the law informs our love. We need to realize this, that in the gospel, 
We are not separated from law, uh, law advised behavior. We are not separated from the law's commands. What we are is we are removed from the curse of the law so that the law no longer condemns us, it condemned Christ. It, we are removed from the law as our justification. We no longer need to meet its requirements to be saved. We are saved in Christ. But what happens is that we are enabled in the gospel to live out the law in our life. Not for our salvation, but because and a part of our salvation. We are not freed from the law. We are freed from sin in order to live according to the law. The law of God informs, empowers, and directs the Christian way of life. Spirit-born people always love. But spirit-born people always love in a way that accords with the law of God. So when Paul says that he's saying love, grow with faith in and through that Thessalonian church, he's meaning a, a biblically informed lifestyle to each other of love based on faith in God's word and in Christ in the gospel. And of course, that paired with knowing that they do love and miss him is an encouragement to Paul's heart. And so we see this exciting result. We've seen that's the encouraging report. That's what's coming back to Paul. Of course he's excited. Of course he's encouraged and comforted in his affliction, as verse 7 goes on to say. Listen, to the exciting result. Verse 7. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. What has happened is that Paul, in, in all of his affliction, and, and affliction and persecution has been real in this missionary journey. We, we saw that last couple of weeks. We've been looking specifically at that. But particularly, now down in Corinth, which is where he's writing this letter from, we see in the book of Acts that he actually struggled greatly to such a degree that God had to give him a vision saying, don't run away, don't leave this town, stay here. I have elect people here to be saved. And so he stayed. Nonetheless, we see he was struggling. And his missionary work in Corinth was difficult and racked with persecution. And he says, in that context, in my affliction, I hear the good news about the Thessalonians and I am comforted. My external situation doesn't actually change, but my internal does because I hear the good news of my brothers, sisters, and spiritual children. There is no greater joy than knowing that our brothers and sisters in the faith are going well. We can just read in 3 John, back before the book of Revelation. 3 John chapter, uh, sorry, verse 4. The Apostle John says this, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Do you hear that? 
the, the emphasis of anybody who has lived your life seeing people saved and, and seeking to have people come to know Christ. If, if that is on your mind, then their growth is on your heart. And, there, and, and, and so Hudson Taylor even said in his life, having labored long and hard in China for the gospel as this pioneer missionary, he said that if I had a thousand lives, I'd give them all for China. You see, see that, that's what he's showing, that, that on my heart is the people of God, and so on my heart is their growth. I want to know they are going well. I want to see them do well in the walk of faith. Matthew Henry said this, I would think it a greater happiness to gain one soul to Christ than mountains of silver and gold to myself. What a great Pauline mindset these men have to say such things. That in affliction, we're comforted if I know that my, my preached gospel is bringing about salvation. And if I know that my children in the faith are walking in love and the truth. This is on his heart. It encourages him as he hears it. So that climactically he can say in verse 8, and we're going to take some application from this. Verse 8, Now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. He's saying that I'm in such an emotional turmoil, so much affliction, worry, concern. I'm, I'm kind of emotionally, I'm dead. I'm on that table. I'm about to flatline. I'm about to be called time of death. I'm on my way out, being only barely sustained by God. And then I hear of the Thessalonian church flourishing in their faith and love. And it is like a defibrillator to my chest that shocks me into life and joy and encouragement. Friends, we, in our mystical union to Christ, and by faith, you have not just received salvation from Christ, you have in fact come into union with Him. And in that union, you and I then, as the New Testament tells us, we have union with each other. Now the imagery we're often given is organs in the body of Christ. So that as, as the spleen goes, so goes the lungs. As the lungs go, so goes the heart. As the eye goes, so goes the rest of the body. Right? We are connected to each other. You can't just slice off one finger and the rest of your body not feel that pain, lose that blood, gain that infection, and miss out on having that extra digit. You can't just pop out a kidney and expect that your blood system... Your, your respiratory system, your central nervous system will not be affected. Of course it will. And so you and I, whether we see it visibly, which we don't, or whether we sense it or not, which we may not oftentimes, we are in a real, true, invisible, spiritual way joined together in our life. So there's one of us, or a group of us, or this church grows spiritually. It is good for the rest of the body. And friend, as you neglect holiness, as you neglect prayer, 
As you struggle in your faith, the rest of us feel that and are affected by that. We share a common source of spiritual life and we feed one another so that we should be able to say to each other in this organic connection that you are growing and so I am living. And you are failing and perishing, and so I am in pain and dying myself. That it is for my own uh, good that I should look out for your good. That it is for your own good that you should be looking out for me. We are opposed to what Cain said back in Genesis. We are each other's keepers. One body. Common salvation, common life source, and so we feed each other. I just want to encourage here because so often we can feel lifeless. We can feel disconnected, broken down, and and just as you would not ask the question, if somebody was feeling a little low in life and you look next to them and there's their kidney slapped on the table, you would not wonder what the connection of those two things are. Hmm, your kidney's outside of your body, you're not feeling well. Could this be at all related? Friends, what we need to see is that your life, your lifeliness, your energy in following Christ, your holiness, your encouragement, your strength, your exhortation, all of that is so, so connected to how, how you are connected to the church to fellowship with your brothers and sisters? Is your life completely your own and you just have an hour of connection with the church on a Sunday? That is not the view of the church in the New Testament, but that we should be joined together. So I'm encouraging you, are you connected to the vine of Christian fellowship? Or are you thinking you will flourish away from it? And maybe you, are, you consider that you are growing well, you are, you are developing, you have maturity, but you, friend, you are not mature if that maturity is occurring outside the context of a local church and without connection and intimate relationship with other Christians. This is so often just the, the key to Christian growth that so many people miss out on. The key is, have other Christians around you in this covenant community. God has always been about community. And there he works in and through the rest of us for the good of the whole. No matter how weak the the vine, the branch of your faith is, no matter how weak the vine of your faith is, or how strong the vine of your faith is, If it is not planted in the garden of a church of rich fellowship, it is misplaced. Paul's example shows us that. I'm sure your own experience tells you that. And where both of those are not enough, God's word commands that, that we would not neglect to meet together, that we might exhort one another to love and good deeds. Can we just wrap up here in in Paul's uh, wording of verse 9 and 10? 
He says, what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before God? I, I am so filled with joy, says Paul. I don't even have words to thank him for, to thank God for. I, I don't even have the, the words to put together the praise that I'm feeling for your good growth in Christ. But isn't it interesting and definitely informative that Paul does not write back to the Thessalonians in just congratulations and praise, but he acknowledges the source of that spiritual growth. The source of the spiritual growth is God. It is God who, as he says in Philippians 2.13, works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Wherever there is something that is pleasing to Christians in other Christians, whenever there is something in a church that is pleasing to God, that was God's own doing. He is the source of all of that. He deserves all of the praise and glory. But also, I want to encourage you that, that God did not, God did not by his gracious divine election choose you for salvation and then send his son in grace to save you through the cross and then send his spirit in grace to bring you to the point of faith and salvation and then leave you on your own. He did not do all of these gracious steps just to leave you with a, a few short tips on how to stay Christian, get to heaven, do well, and then leave you, disembark, go back up and enjoy his triunity in heaven. You are joined with Christ, indwelt by the Spirit, and watched over by the Father. He has not now neglected you, but wherever you are in your life, it is God working in you. Now, the next part of what Paul says is based on that conviction. And it's almost quite frustrating, but it's also very, very encouraging. Paul just doesn't rest up. He doesn't lay easy and, and uh, lay off the Thessalonian Christians. Look at this. In verse 10, he says, As we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see your face, uh, sorry, that we may see you face to face, of course. He's praying night and day to see them again, and so that he can just see them, enjoy their growth, praise God that they've grown in faith and love, and then relax, right? Paul deserves a rest, right? The growing Thessalonians deserve a pat on the back, and then no more exhortation to growth, right? Not to Paul. Not at all to Paul, he says that when I come to you, I also want to supply what is lacking in your faith. To Paul, no matter how much he can praise God for their growth, no matter how much he can praise God for the work of faith and love in that church, it's never enough. There's always something lacking that needs to be encouraged. Not because Paul is a hard taskmaster, hard taskmaster who's, uh, you know, throwing that whip on their back to, to control them and micromanage them and a perfectionist. No, he's not those things. He's a loving father and a wise pastor. And you know what he knows? He knows that the infinite 
God has communed with us in the infinite gospel and commanded to us an infinite holiness and an infinite standard on the way of his infinite gospel being spread throughout the world. And we are empowered by and strengthened with the infinite spirit within us. Therefore, there is no excuse for laxing back, for, for hanging down and just sort of kicking our feet up because I've, I've gone pretty well in holiness. I've developed well. I'm, I'm seeing sin be left off. I'm, I'm growing in my knowledge. I'm, in, I'm encouraging other Christians. I'm getting to church services. I'm reading my word. These are all amazing works of God in your life. And he is not yet done. He is not yet done. There is more to do. There is greater glory to pursue. There is greater holiness to uh, perform and to be living in. Never settle with your current standard of holiness. So if you are someone quite, quite happy with how you're going, be warned. Do not become proud and inactive. Always seek greater Christ-likeness. But if you are someone quite discouraged, left behind, feel like you can look at, like, at other Christians your age or, or your, Christian, you know, your spiritual age and say they're far ahead of me, let it be known today that, you can, uh, that you, by God's Holy Spirit you can work towards holiness just as they do. You are no second-class Christian. You're not weaker in a way that, that they are not. You have the Holy Spirit. If you set your mind to obedience, if you set your heart to faith in God and all that He has done, the promises of God are yes and amen for you as to anyone else. There is no comparison here. We're not, we're not grading the church on, on mature to immature and cutting off the last few friends you, wherever you are in the Christian walk. Maybe you are discouraged and walking behind. To you, God will empower and bring you into greater Christ-likeness if you would just believe. Trust the gospel. Trust Jesus being the fulfillment of all of your sin, the, 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 the satisfier of all of the condemnation from God. And you, you will see that faith and love well up as you look to Christ in the gospel. There is no one on earth still breathing in whom the Holy Spirit dwells and has stopped acting. You need to, you must, as Paul says, even the Thessalonians must do, continue on in your faith. Supplement it with knowledge. Increase it by trust and establish it in the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. Let's pray. Father God, the, the example of Paul is amazing. It is encouraging, and yet other times what he commands, what he expects, what he shows to us as his own example can be discouraging, seeing how far short we fall. But God, I pray that we would not be considering ourselves as unable to walk in that. But Lord, by the Holy Spirit, you can bring every one of us, whatever the sin is weighing us down, whatever the guilt is laying on us, whatever our own temptations that are striking at us, your Holy Spirit can preserve 
persevere and encourage and improve every one of us into Christ-likeness. Pray, God, especially that, that your Holy Spirit, through the Word, in the Gospel of Jesus, would bring people to faith and salvation, right standing with you, that you would encourage and equip Christians away from lack of assurance, make your gospel the only thing we trust. May you make Jesus the the source, the finisher of our faith and the object of all our desire, all of our worship and all of our thanksgiving, for from him are all things. God, we praise you and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.